Let's um, start this morning by asking a simple question, kind of a self-reflection question. If you're, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself to be spiritual or, or religious or maybe even a, you know, a follower of Jesus Christ, or even if you're here this morning, you're not any of those things, but, but you believe in the power of prayer, how do you feel about your prayer life these days? How happy are you with the kind of praying you've been doing? Are you, are you satisfied with the kind of praying that you sustain on a daily or, or a weekly basis? Or are you discouraged by it? Do you wish you could be better at, at praying than you are? Whatever that means. Actually, that's a good question. What does that mean? What does it mean to be better at praying? When you, if you feel like, I wish I was better at praying, or if you feel like, I, I think I am pretty good at praying, what does that mean? What are the metrics? What are the criteria to be good at praying? Is it, um, is it frequency? You know, how often you pray? Is it, is it duration? The length of your prayers? Is it content? Like the, the core of what it is that you, that you say? What would, what are the, characteristics of a prayer life, a prayer habit that you'd be happy with? Let me give you a variation on the question. What kind of prayer habit, what kind of prayer life makes God happy? What's he looking for in a, in a solid, robust life of prayer? What kinds of things does God check in a good prayer life? What kind of prayer life would God like from you? That's kind of what we've been exploring or what we are exploring in this series called God Likes This. In fact, it's part of the theme of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying for a while where Jesus is talking about what it looks like to live rightly in our relationship with God. And in particular, this month, we're looking at what it looks like to live rightly in our relationship with God in those spiritual practices, in those religious habits that become a part of nurturing and expressing and growing our love and devotion for God. Things like, you know, giving generously to the poor, like we talked about last week, or praying, or fasting. I mean, Jesus could have mentioned a number of things. He could have talked about going to worship or reading the Bible or volunteering or being a part of a spiritual community or serving the poor. Those spiritual practices, those habits that we form in order to grow and express our love and devotion to God. What, what kind of relationship, what kind of, how do we practice those things in a way that God approves of, that God likes? And the theme verse, kind of the poster for this entire series is, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus' point in all three of these weeks is, whenever you engage in spiritual practices like giving to the poor or praying or fasting, don't do it as a show that you put on for other people to impress people, to please people for their approval, for their thumbs up. It's not something you do for people. It's something you do for God. And if you want to experience 
blessing out of your life of spiritual practices, if you want to experience the abundance and, and depth and richness of a life lived rightly in relationship with God, then don't perform, don't live your spiritual life as a religious performance for other people. Do it out of a heart that is filled with love for God because a a life of love that comes out of a heart of love for God is the deepest, most fulfilling, abundant, life-giving, joy-filled, healthy, empowered, connected, inspired, peaceful way that you could ever imagine living. And that's true, we talked about last week, that's true in the way that you give uh, financially to the poor, which was a central spiritual practice in life of the Jews. In fact, I said last week that according to the rabbis, um, there was hardly a spiritual practice that could be said to be more important than giving to the poor. Well, what is true about our giving to the poor is actually more true about our life of prayer. That the rabbis said, Rabbi Eliezer said, prayer is greater than any good work. Greater than any religious act a person could perform. The most significant and important thing a person can do in their life with God is to pray. Which is probably why the Jews were a culture that were so obsessed with prayer. Their whole day was structured around prayer. Like the Muslims today, um, three times every day, the Muslims uh, stop for prayer five times every day, but the Jews stopped three times every day for prayer. That at set times during the day, the, the expectation was that you would stop whatever it is that you were doing, you would drop whatever it was that you were working on, and you would take some time to devote yourself to prayer. Between uh, 6 a.m. and sun, or sunrise at 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., somewhere in there, you were to stop what you were doing and pray your morning prayers. And then again in the middle of the day, around 3 p.m., the hour of prayer. And then again after 6 p.m., before 9 p.m., in that evening hour, you were to stop what you were to do and pray. It was not... You know, there's some sort of hour-long marathon or anything like that. It wasn't a Bible study. It wasn't your quiet time. It wasn't, it wasn't anything complicated. It was just a few minutes set aside from your day, three times a day, where you would stop whatever it was that you were doing and, and pray. Um, aside from the set times during the day, there were set occasions during every day for prayer. There were prayers that were associated with many of the activities that a Jew would do throughout the course of the day. There was a prayer that they ought to pray while they were washing and a prayer they would pray before the meal and a different prayer that they would pray after the meal. There was a prayer you'd pray at first light, a prayer you'd pray when you light your fire, a prayer that you would pray if you saw lightning or a prayer that you'd pray if you saw the sea or a river. 
There was a prayer that you would pray if you got good news. There was a prayer that you'd pray if you got new furniture. There'd be, there was a specific prayer that you were supposed to pray when you left your house and a different one when you entered the house and a different one when you left your city and a different one when you entered the city. All the way through the day, there were specific activities that Jews would do and every time they did specific activities, there were specific set prayers that they were supposed to pray at the same time. In between the set times of prayer, they had set occasions for prayer. And in every one of those moments, the prayers they prayed were prayers that were, um, they were instructed to pray. They weren't making up prayers. They were praying words from the law or words from the Psalms, which is the ancient prayer book of Israel, or words that the rabbi has written for them to pray. In between the set times of prayer and the set occasions for prayer, Pious Jews would fill their lives with all sorts of spontaneous prayer. In Luke chapter 5 verse 16, if you read the life of Jesus, one thing you discover is that Jesus was a man who was absolutely, utterly devoted to prayer. In Luke 5 verse 16, it says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. And prayed outside of the set times every day for prayer, outside of the set occasions for prayer, Jesus would often carve time out of his day to go off by himself and pray. When you read the stories of the gospel, you discover that Jesus was a person who prayed during every one of his major life events. At his baptism, he was praying. When he chose his disciples, his 12 disciples, he spent all night the night before praying. He would often pray for healing for people that he would meet on the road. He would pray for his disciples, for the future, for the church, for the gospel. The night he was crucified, he spent the whole night praying in preparation and then spent the time on the cross praying for forgiveness for the people who were crucifying him. Jesus was a man whose life was undergirded in every way by prayer. You read the example of the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, 12 of those letters begin with prayer. With very specific prayers to the specific people that he was writing to saying, every time I think about you, I thank God for you because of this and that and the other thing. Saying, listen, every time you pop into my head, I pray for you. No wonder, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul describes the will of God for those who would be followers of Jesus. No wonder, this is how he describes it. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, live a life of ongoing, habitual, praise-filled, grateful prayer. That's God's heart for your life. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to live a life of ongoing prayer at set times during the day, during set activities during the day, spontaneously creating moments to go off on your own and to pray, it's creating moments throughout the day as things come to your mind, as people come to your mind, you're just praying, praying, praying as the day goes along. Your, your life is to be a life that is built on prayer. It was their way of reorienting all of their reality back to their relationship with God. Their day, the foundation of the structure of their day was dictated by prayer. Their life wasn't 
run by a calendar or a clock or a meal schedule or a shift schedule or a meeting schedule or a nap schedule or a class schedule or a to-do list or a chore list. The structure of their day was defined by prayer. The rhythm of their life was dictated by prayer. It was a way of reprioritizing their day. Of stopping to remember that the essence of life is not working or playing or going to school or being with your family or playing hockey or any of those that are all good things. But they, they don't form the core of life. When those moments came, you were to stop everything and reorient yourself in prayer. It was prayer. It was your relationship with God that undergirded everything that mattered in life. Your life was not in the hands of your boss or in the hands of your teacher or in the hands of your spouse or in the hands of your kids or in the hands of your friends or in the hands of the PTA. Your life was in God's hands and that's what mattered. That's where the abundance of life was to be found in your relationship with God, not in anything else. It reminded you of what your life was to be all about. See, at those set times for prayer, one of the prayers that they would pray every day, three times a day, was called the Shema. And it starts like this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God alone is God. So love Yahweh our God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Three times a day, they call a time out to remind themselves that the calling on their life is to love God with everything they have and everything they are. And then they would recite the Ten Commandments to remind themselves of what a life of loving God and loving people looks like. Mostly, it reminded them that the God who is is a God who has invited them into relationship, who has started a conversation, who has initiated a dialogue, and who wants to just be in constant communication with the people they love. And their life of prayer was simply a response of relationship to the God who loved them. Their life was a life that was defined by prayer. Which meant that there were some inherent dangers to what it looked like to live a life that is defined by prayer. In in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5, Jesus says this, And when you pray, he says, Do not be like the hypocrites, For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. One of the prayers that the Jews were to pray three times a day was a prayer called the Amidah. It was kind of a a collection of 19 little mini prayers that praised God for stuff, thanked God for stuff, and asked God for stuff. And it was this prayer that they had all memorized. 
these 19 little prayers. And it was called the Amidah because Amidah means standing prayer. It was how you delivered the prayer. At the moment of the hour to prayer, the Jews were to stop whatever they were doing, to put their feet together, stand up straight, lift their hands to heaven, look to the skies and pray the Shema, love the Lord your God, and to pray the Amidah, the standing prayer. They were to pray it out loud to actually move their mouth and vocalize the words, to speak it into the universe, to make it real. Not loudly, just to themselves. But they were to stand in this posture and to pray, which is, by the way, why we stand and raise our arms to worship, because it's the posture of prayer. Well, you can imagine how tempting it would be for somebody who is committed to pausing three times a day to pray the Amidah, the standing prayer. You can imagine how tempting it would be to organize your day such that when the hour of prayer came, you were standing in some public place where everyone could see you pray. See, the truth of the matter is not everybody paused three times a day for prayer I mean, it was as hard back then as it would be for us to break our schedule three times a day to set aside even a few moments for prayer. It was not an easy habit to develop. Krista and I were in Istanbul this past September. And five times a day you hear from the mosque, the muzin, I think it's called, calling out the time of prayer. And I'll tell you, by close to the end of the week, we looked around and we said, I don't think we've seen a single person stop what they're doing in order to pray. And it wasn't true because at one time we had lunch right across the street from a mosque and we heard the call to prayer and we saw people filing into the mosque to pray. We realized, oh, there are people, what you do is you, you go to the mosque and pray and that's, the Jews could go to the synagogue and be a part of the prayer service there. But the expectation was that if you weren't going to the synagogue, you would stop in the street, stop whatever it was that you were doing and, do, and pray the standing prayer. And those who did it, got noticed. And some of those who did it who got noticed would plan their day such that at 3 p.m. when the call to prayer was issued, they were standing in the middle of the marketplace or standing on a busy street corner where everyone would notice just how spiritual they were, that they would stop in the middle of the day to pray the prayer. Jesus says, I'll tell you, that kind of prayer has nothing to do with talking to God. That has nothing to do with a relationship to God. You're not even talking to God. You're talking to the people around you. You're not doing it for him. You're doing it for them. You're doing it to create an impression. You're doing it for their approval, to impress them, to please them. You're doing it to enhance your reputation as a spiritual person. Jesus says, that has nothing to do with your life with God, and God doesn't even notice when you pray that way. You don't pray for the impact that you'll have on everybody else. You pray in order to have a conversation with your heavenly father. It was interesting to think about this text for our community this week because there's not a lot of us who pray very often in public, I don't think. I mean, I do. I'm a professional Christian, so I kind of get prayed to, I get paid to pray wherever I go. If I'm in a wedding or a funeral or a family gathering or out for dinner with friends or after every single sermon, just about every single week, I, you know, I'm constantly praying in front of people. 
And I'm constantly battling exactly the kind of temptation that Jesus is talking about. You know, on a morning like this one, when the sermon is done, I will pray. And the whole time, I will battle the temptation to simply use my prayer to summarize the sermon to make sure that all of you fine people have fully absorbed the profound and deep wisdom of what it is that I'm saying this morning. Just to make sure you got it. Or sometimes I find myself praying at the end of the sermon, realizing that there was something that I forgot to say. And so I just kind of throw it in the prayer to make sure that you've heard Everything that I wanted to say this morning. Whenever I pray in public, I'm just always aware that I'm being listened to and feel like I'm being evaluated as a pastor and as a person and as a Christian and so as a communicator. So I try and sound eloquent and smart and spiritual and biblical and pastoral and theological and impressive. Impressive to you. And to the degree to which, Jesus is the degree to which I'm praying in order to talk to you, I am not praying in order to talk to God. And God takes no notice of my prayer because it's not addressed to him. I don't think I'm alone, actually, in our community. I think there are a lot of people in our community who do pray with other people from time to time. Who pray with your spouse or pray with your boyfriend or girlfriend or pray with your family or who pray with your friends, who pray with your life group, who say grace before a meal. People who pray when other people are present and the degree to which your prayers are affected by the fact that other people are present is the degree to which you're praying for people and not for God. You're talking to them, not to him. When when people put on airs and pray, even though you'd never talk like this, pray these sort of super formal prayers to try and make your prayer sound significant. Or, uh, some people do the opposite, the way you go out of your way to make your prayers super informal, almost irreverent, just to make them sound authentic. Or I sometimes do this, I've heard other people do this, where in the middle of your prayer you quote a, a book or an author or from the Bible or something, and it gives your, your prayer an air of authority. The degree to which the way you pray is affected by the presence of the people around you is the degree to which you've lost the point of prayer. In fact, I think the primary way this passage affects us, ironically, is that there are many, many people in our community who don't pray because they're afraid of what people will say. It's not so much that we pray in order to impress the people around us. It's that we choose not to pray in order to not embarrass ourselves. Because we think our prayers will sound stupid or weak or inferior or unbiblical or wrong. or We're just afraid that we won't pray well enough to earn the respect of the people who are listening. We entirely Miss the point. The degree to which the way you pray is affected by the people around you is the degree to which you've entirely missed the point of prayer, which is why Jesus says, stop critiquing your prayers, stop critiquing each other's prayers, and just start communicating with me. In verse 6, he says, but when you pray, he says, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Uh, when Jesus says, go into your room, he doesn't mean your, your bedroom. He's talking about an inner room in, that nearly every Jewish house had. It, as I understand, it was the only room in the house that really wasn't connected in any way to an exterior wall. See, the houses were made of mud, and so all the rooms on the exterior walls were susceptible to break in. In the middle of the night, a thief could just dig through the wall and grab your valuables right out of the room. This inner room wasn't connected to the exterior wall. It was safe. It was a safe room. It was the only room in the house that had a door. It was the only room in the house that could lock. It's where you kept all your valuables. It's where you kept your food. It's where you kept everything that you didn't want anyone to touch, whatever you wanted to protect. It was kind of like a storage closet and a pantry and a safe, a vault, all kind of combined into one. And, and the picture actually that Jesus is creating is kind of a comical one because it's the least suitable place for prayer in the entire Jewish house. But Jesus is saying, when you pray, Go into that room. Go into the storage closet. Go into the crawl space that's filled with boxes and junk and garbage and whatever and just kind of clear out enough floor space for you to sit down or to, or to lie on your face or however you're going to pray. Just clear out enough space for you to fit. Then close the door and in absolute pitch blackness, pray to God. Now he doesn't really mean you're never allowed to pray in public. That you always have to pray by yourself. Uh, Jesus prayed in public and prayed in front of people and so on. His point is, he's exaggerating his point. What he's saying is this is a true test of your motives. If your prayers change when you go into a closet like that, because no one else is around, then you've missed the point of prayer. The goal is to pray to learn how to pray in an environment like that, to learn how to pray as though only God is listening because only God is listening in that moment, in that space. You don't have to worry about other people because only God is there. You won't have to worry about what people hear because only God can hear. You won't have to worry about what people will say because nobody will say anything. It's just between you and God. Jesus says, go into the closet and learn how to pray just between you and God. And then... Learn how to pray like that wherever you are. Pray as though it were just you and God, regardless of when and where you pray and how many people are there and who else might be listening. Learn to pray as you would in the closet, wherever you pray, for God's ears only, in order to please God only, for his approval only because if you pray for God alone, then God who hears your prayers, even when they're prayed in secret, will reward you. That's the kind of prayer that God likes. The kind of prayer that's for him only and not for anyone else, regardless of how many people are around. That's where you go to pray. But Jesus says, actually, there's a second danger in the way that we pray. He says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says, here's the other way that prayer breaks down, is that people think they need to pray long, babbling, rambling prayers in order to coerce God into listening. 
That's what the Gentiles would do. They would play these, pray these wrong, long prayers filled with meaningless words where they're just repeating the names of gods and, and reciting magical formulas and incantations, trying to pray a prayer long enough and devoted enough with just the right words said in just the right way in order to manipulate the gods to saying yes. The, the, the uh, philosophers used to call it wearing the gods down. Trying to manipulate God by your long prayers. I think that there are some of us in our community who think that God has a stopwatch when we pray. That he's timing us. We're just convinced that God is more impressed with a one hour prayer than he is with a one minute prayer. And so we try and pray longer prayers in order to feel like we've done something significant. When Jesus says the time that you pray is irrelevant. In fact, Martin Luther said, the fewer the words in prayer, the better. God isn't timing your prayer. He doesn't care if you pray a long time. Jesus prayed all night at times. He doesn't care if you pray persistently about the same things. Jesus said, keep praying and don't give up. So don't try and, don't get caught into believing that I'm more prone to say yes if you pray for a long time. Because then praying for a long time, the thing that happens is we start filling our prayers with meaningless stuff. Every gap in every sentence gets filled with a Heavenly Father or Dear Lord. Dear Lord, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for being with us, dear Lord. And we just pray, Heavenly Father, that you be with us, dear Lord. Stop saying God's name. He knows his name. He doesn't need to hear it 50 million times. Or we, we fill it with the word just. Every sentence has the word just. Lord, we just thank you. And we just want to pray that you would just bless us. And you would just fill us with the Holy Spirit. And you would just teach us something. You don't need, what is the word? Don't stop saying the word just. It doesn't mean anything. Or we say these mindless prayers, right? Lord, bless this food to our body and us to our service. What do you, you say, you just kind of, five minutes later, you don't even remember whether or not you pray because it didn't mean anything to you. You're just saying words that, that you just, Jesus says, stop saying things that don't mean anything. Stop repeating stuff that has no value. Just say what you mean and mean what you say. And it doesn't have to be long. It can be a minute long. It can be just, God, please, I need this. Because look, at the end of the day, here's what's true about God, Jesus says. God is your father. You don't have to talk him into saying yes. God is your, his assumed responsibility for your life and he loves you and he's committed to you and he's ready to give you everything that you need. Not everything that you want, not everything that you ask for. He's ready to give you everything that you need because he loves you and he's a good parent. And you don't need to fill God in on the details on what's going on in your life. God knows what's going on in your life. All he wants you to do is come to him in prayer in every circumstance and just talk to him about what's going on in your life. Talk to him about how you feel. Talk to him about what you see in the world. Talk to him about how you wish life and the world could be different because of what he would do through Jesus Christ. Just talk to him about your life. It doesn't have to be profound or long or complicated. It is simple and direct and sincere. Just be honest with God and talk to him about life. Not so that others can hear. Not to impress anybody else. But just because you want to talk to God. If you're here this morning, and you're not praying the way you would want to pray. What is stopping you from praying? 
Do you need a, a regimen, a routine? Do you need to set times during the day? Do you need to um, commit yourself to uh, the discipline of praying while you're washing or praying while you're eating or praying while, things that will remind you to pray or do you need just the discipline to pray whenever stuff pops into your head? Do you, just, the point is just talk to God. If maybe you're intimidated by people, just ignore everybody else. Just honestly, simply, humbly, sincerely, with no airs, no show, no performance, no trying to impress anybody, including God. Just talk to God about what's going on in your life. Because that's the kind of prayer that God likes. The kind of prayer that will fill your life with the richness and depth and abundance and joy and health and hope of a life lived rightly in relationship with God. Let's pray together. Father, make us a community that prays, that's consumed by the desire to talk to you. Make us the kind of community that realizes that we can do nothing without you. Make us the kind of community that is passionately in love with you, desperate to talk to you, like we are like we use our social media, just wanting to, to put all of every part of our life out there in conversation with you, God. Teach us to respond to your invitation to live in relationship and ongoing conversation with you where only you matter because only you matter. And we pray this in Jesus' name.